the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values, and it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle? Well, a look today at 30 Ways, 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk, and a new book out tonight, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications. And Rebecca Hegland, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you, you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly who they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, You know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that, hey, it is adults that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the dollars that today's youth spends. I mean, our children today are the most affluent children in the history of the world. And the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income. And the marketers know that. And so they're after that share of the pie. And unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, 
but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this. Um, and then once parents read at least those couple chapters, to sit down and go over them with their children, too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world versus you against your child. And, you know, the and irony is, is really important. For, for our parents, when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to, and they're being viewed as all potential customers from uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that, you know, that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. Um, even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical, and the pediatrician female pediatrician actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, "Uh, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the, the long to make a long story short, the point is that I did some research after that. And uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information. Um, and what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is, hey, it's up to you to do what you feel. Um, some people believe sex is, you know, only for marriage, but you get to decide that at 12 years old. Um, and so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that, that is key because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and, and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God-honoring with the kind of uh, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters. And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle, and all of a sudden now there becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child, not battling the culture. So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child in a, at a level in which we can really have not only effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Hegland. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, 
we ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hegeling continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, it's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And, of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it, in that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting, and you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle, because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on television or the internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to, to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their heart, so that I know that they know that I love them and I'm there for them and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this. And you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies. Great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your house a no zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, There are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices, but my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live leave our house wondering what is right, and they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger, and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, If you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket. And whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make. And that, I guess, at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You, you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, You do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, You have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that work for others um, that are in the book as well. And, uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. There's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and and starting afresh and anew tonight if if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent, and the child is watching you. Is it important that you're, you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example? Yes, it's always important. I've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to, to make good friendships, and uh, part of that includes, why don't you, mom and dad, take a few minutes to examine your own friendships? Um, your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, there's information there. You know, a lot of 
people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that won't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're, they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, if you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here, and you think, oh, that's just a little white lie, a lie is a lie. And your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and, and mom and dad sitting down and, and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of, one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers, oftentimes they'll hear me speak and they'll think, beginning, oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong. And my, my answer to that is, as long as there's breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to to have a son or a daughter say, mom was my hero, dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness, it's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great-grandfather or grandfather who has who served in World War II, or, you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home um, to, and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models you know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there, Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to uh, influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well. 
no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive. And um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside to all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. Its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Heglin. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's the Resurgent. Surgeon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know us, the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, 76 million all told. And as that group of Americans reaches retirement age, sometimes even younger, 10,000 a day become eligible for retirement. It's commonly referred to by retirement planning experts as the grain of America. But, of course, with this huge number of Americans that are getting older come all the things that attend older age, disability, illness, just the process of growing older. We are seeing an explosion in home caregiving, and it's for many reasons, many for very good altruistic reasons that families see the value and honor in keeping a loved one at home. We certainly did that with my grandmother when she was not really capable of staying by herself anymore. We never really thought that a so-called rest home, retirement center or such was appropriate because we wanted her to live out her years in her home and with her family. And by the grace of God, we were successful at accomplishing just that. Still growing numbers in America today that perhaps um, never thought about buying long-term care insurance, mistakenly thought they had it when they didn't, find out that something has happened. It could be uh, the product of growing older. It just could be illness, disease, or an accident that causes a loved one to now be confined at home, and suddenly you find yourself in the position of being a caregiver. And while initially it sounds like you're just simply doing your duty, after a while... The days turn into weeks, turn into months, in some cases turn into years. And as we learn, many of the people that do the caregiving wind up, while certainly doing a great and honorable thing, wind up shortening their own lives. How can we make life a bit better, a bit easier for caregivers, many of whom feel like they have no hope? Joining me now is Peter Rosenberger. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope. And, Peter, great to have you on the program. But first, let's kind of put this in context, if you would, by sharing a bit of your own story with your spouse, Gracie. Well, Craig, thank you for having me. And um, I, it has been a journey for me. I, I've been doing this now. I'm in my 30th year. I met my wife a couple of years after she had had a horrible accident, and we met at college. She had returned to college. And, you know, I saw that she limped, and I knew that she had had a wreck, and I saw that she had some scars on her lower legs particularly, and uh, did, but I didn't really have any frame of reference of what it was like to be in a relationship with someone who was hurt. She'd already had 20 operations by the time I met her, uh, but we were young and optimistic and, and, and both very much in love. And quite truthfully, Craig, she's a babe. 
you know. And so <laughs> I was just thinking, this this girl's a babe. And then I then I heard her sing, and and I knew that that the soul that was there was just somebody that I wanted to care for for the rest of of our life together. And I had no idea. I was just as dumb as a box of rocks when it came to this sort of thing. And uh, to give you a, a fast forward here, we're up to now that I can count 78 surgeries. Now, that's not all the procedures. That's just surgeries. She gave up both of her legs in the 90s. She's had more than $9 million worth of medical bills. It's probably closer to 10 or 11 now. 60-plus uh, doctors. I stopped counting at 62 years ago, and she's had a dozen more come on since then, I think. So it's just it just keeps escalating. Seven different uh, insurance companies and <clears throat> 12 different hospitals where she's been treated. So... This has been a medical nightmare uh, that has never plateaued. We've had mo- seasons where things are okay and it's not quite as dire. We do some fun things together, but then we have just constant grind of, of issues that are going on. My message is all about stewardship for the caregiver. And I have to realize that I didn't do this to my wife. I didn't break her, and I can't unbreak her. I can't fix this, and God has me here for a much different purpose. This challenge, you know, when uh, we exchange vows at the altar, it's uh, in sickness and in health, and we r- kind of rattle through that. And, 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 and we, like the, uh, we like the living and the health part, the uh, sickness and the death do us part portion, we really don't give much context to. And, you know, in all fairness, we're young, we're starting out a new life together with uh, our loved ones, so we're probably not thinking about how things may end and yet, inevitably, we know that everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, and for a lot of people, that uh, maybe suddenly there's just that sense of, oh, my goodness, I, I don't recall signing up for this. Well, and they did. And, and that's just the bottom line. They did. And now some of the people that are doing this are not doing it for a spouse. They're doing it for uh, a parent, or they're doing it for a cousin or a brother or a neighbor. Or there's, just, there, there's all kinds of things. Uh, I, I, I spend... Uh, good bit of time talking with uh, people in the homosexual community that are taking care of somebody that's a, that's a friend, a neighbor, a partner, or whatever, that they didn't have any kind of vows or anything. They're just in this situation. Uh, it, it's, it's everywhere. It's affecting everybody. If you notice the other day uh, when um, uh, the Denver Broncos won the, won the game, the, that's the first time that the AFC Championship trophy has been accepted by a caregiver. Because Boland has, uh, uh, the owner has Alzheimer's, and his wife accepted it. It's everywhere, and it's affecting everybody from every kind of walk of life, whether you're married, whether you're, you're just neighbors, whether you're, in, it's, you're living together. It doesn't matter. It's everywhere. If you love somebody, you're going to be a caregiver. If you live long enough, you're probably going to need one. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, this sudden shifting of roles. And I say shifting of roles because oftentimes we're, we're accustomed with, uh, you know, we're raising a family, raising kids, so uh, uh, doing things like fixing meals and bathing them and changing diapers. Well, we get all of that. We also get about the fact that they're eventually going to grow out of that process and be able to care for themselves. Sadly, that's not true in all cases. And when we talk about caregiving, particularly for the elderly, we understand that... The, the real end scenario is probably going to be deterioration, not the hopes of suddenly getting better. And so you, you, know, you begin to sick, get sick at 84, and by the time you're 90, you're healthy as can be again. It doesn't work out that way. No, it doesn't. And you don't also have with uh, families with special needs children. Mm. Uh, my brother has a daughter with cerebral palsy. She's been this way uh, from birth, and she's basically like taking care of a 2-year-old, and she's 27. 
dealing with so many different dynamics in here. And what I what I found, Craig, is this. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, but what I found is the task of caregiving, uh, whether it's changing diapers, whether it's making meals or bathing, and all those kinds of things. Those things can be tedious and even unpleasant. But that's not really the heartache of a caregiver, I have found. Most people can kind of punch through those things. The heartache of the caregiver is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, that this thing could go on for, for so long and that they are losing themselves in this journey. Uh, caregivers suffer from three eyes, Craig. They lose their independence, they lose their identity, and they become isolated. And it's in that craziness that most caregivers start to despair and, and start to, to struggle. Those late-night conversations with the ceiling fan, and, and you're just wondering, is this ever going to end? Am I ever going to be able to kind of get, get on with my life? And it slowly dawns on a lot of caregivers that this is our life. This is it. This is my life. And this has been my life for 30 years. And I've had to learn that I can live a healthier life in this. I could be happy in this, or I can be miserable in this. That's, that's my choice. You know, I can't choose in, on the, the painful parts of life. We're going to have pain no matter how it comes, but I can choose on how I'm going to respond to it. And that's what I'm trying to learn as a caregiver each and every day myself. And, and I've also learned that healthy caregivers make better caregivers. And I can't simply throw myself recklessly at taking care of my wife with no regards to my own healthiness. And if I don't, if, if I do that, I end up compromising the one person standing between her and even further disaster, which is the caregiver. So there, there's a complex set of emotional challenges that go on with this, and that's what I'm speaking to these caregivers that are in the, the valley of the shadow of death, and it is a long valley. But you don't have to be miserable in it. We're as happy or as miserable as we want to be. So a lot of it has to do with a matter of perspective and attitude, and I want to talk a bit about that when we come back because, you know, truth be told, this is oftentimes lonely, very stressful. I recall when my godfather went through this with my godmother who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, she had a very difficult, very painful last three, three and a half years and it got to the point in the last year or so of her illness, she did not want to be left alone for even a nanosecond. He was not only her primary caregiver, but she demanded that he be in her side for every second. I mean, he could have a neighbor come over to watch her just to give him an opportunity to go to the store. And as he is driving to the store, the poor thing would be on the telephone, on the cell phone, calling him, wanting to know when he was coming back. So. Dealing with those realities, how do we go about having the right perspective on this, the right attitude, so that indeed you as a caregiver can survive? We'll come back to that part of the equation. Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, information, by the way, on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Peter Rosenberger, our guest. He is founder of Caregivers with Hope on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. You know, Peter, as you know from your own experience, this can be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, oftentimes financially draining to the point where a lot of people say, hope, I, I don't see any way out. For me, hope is, and I've heard 
caregivers at kind of the end of their physical, mental, emotional, relational rope say, for me, the only way out, the only relief is when my spouse passes. How do you go about changing your attitude, your mentality regarding this, this challenge that you're facing and, and be able to find hope? Well, there, <clears throat> there's several things. Uh, hope, hope for the Caregiver, and that's the name of my, my new book, is not hearts and rainbows and unicorns. It is the conviction that we as caregivers can live a calmer, healthier, and even more joyful life, even while dealing with grim realities. Now, everything in Scripture tells me that that's the case for us in our Christian walk. You know, Paul said this clearly over and over. You know, we see through the glass darkly right now. We don't see what's going on. We don't always know. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It, that's, our, that's our hope. Our hope is not in eliminating all the unpleasant things of this earth. That, that is not our hope. That is beyond my pay grade. Look down at your hands. If you don't see nail prints, this ain't yours to fix. Mm. You know, that's not our hope, is that we're some, somehow going to live a pain-free life. Our hope is knowing that God has spared us as believers through something for, from something far worse than multiple amputations and Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's and, and 30 years' worth of, of chronic pain. He spared us from something far greater than that. And our hope is that as he is working out his purposes in all these things, we can trust him with that knowledge of, that he has saved us. He has rescued us from something far worse than this, and he is building this thing in a way that we just can't see. He's weaving his redemption through stuff that we just can't understand. And that's what gives us a new perspective so that we can look at the things in our life with trials and knowing that his perfect will is being worked out. And, and Romans 8.28 comes into play here. You know, for I know these things. He, Paul didn't say, for I'm, I'm guessing. He said, I know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's our confidence. So when we're looking at somebody who we're having to, we can't reach anymore because they're impaired through pharmaceuticals or dementia or whatever, we can love them tapped in because we're tapped into the inexhaustible love of God through Christ. And you said before we went to the break, you know, that, that struggle that we have that when, when they won't let go and, and the, 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 your godfather was trying to go to the grocery store and, and your godmother kept calling. This is what I want to tell my fellow caregivers. They're going to do stuff that, that's going to absolutely drive us up the wall sometimes. They're not doing it to us. They're just doing it. And we don't have to take everything so personally. They don't want to be sick. They don't want to deal with dementia. They don't want to deal with chronic pain. They don't want to be doing all this stuff. We just happen to be the closest person to them. But we can learn to let some of that go and not take it all personally. You know, what is it Mother Teresa once said? You know, bless you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the privilege of serving you in your many horrible disguises. Mm. And, and, you know, you can, you can be all bent out of shape about this. But my goal for caregivers is that when we do stand at a grave, and one day, most likely, we will. And that's the goal, by the way, is that for a caregiver to stand at the grave, not be in the grave first. And that's a hard thing to say, but that's the reality. But that we stand there without clenched fists without fists that are clenched at, at our loved one, at families and friends that didn't maybe help the way we wanted them to, at, at, at ourselves for what we could have, would have, should have done, or even at God, that we can learn to live peacefully with these things. Even if your loved one is not dealing with all this stuff, you're not living a trouble-free life. Everybody's got some, something going on. This is just a little bit more accelerated, and it requires us to, to bend our will into the will of God more and faster than we probably would otherwise. 
Is part of this, Peter, sort of the, the natural flesh inclination to push back against um, this aspect of the reality of life? I, I, I often, when, when there's been debates over things like, uh, oh, we want to legalize, uh, say, uh, physician-assisted suicide, because we, we refer to this as death with dignity. And I, and I often think to myself, well, wait a minute, since when is death dignified? Uh, the deterioration of our body and going through pain and agony and all of that stuff, there's nothing dignified about that. Why don't we focus on living living with dignity? And death, sadly, is a product of man's sin nature. It's our fallen condition. Is it is it helpful for the caregiver to be reminded of that, or are we just kind of pushing back against the reality of the grave and maybe our own sense of, of mortality? Well, I think what happens is is we, we, are, we are screaming out for relief. And so we, we rush to things like, uh, you know, euthanizing, things like that, and, and so forth. We're just screaming out for relief. And, and I, I've taken a different path. I mean, again, I've, I've been doing this for, for three decades. I've been doing this since the first Cold War. <laughs> but I, you, you learn to accept that maybe relief is not the thing that we're supposed to be seeking so much, is learning to trust God in this. And we place our scared hand into his scarred hand and learn to see, okay, well, how do I deal with this today? See, nobody can do this for a lifetime, Craig, but anybody can do it for 24 hours. And that's really kind of how we as caregivers have to learn to live. You can only start screaming and crying and praying and, and God bail me out of this, God bail me out of this, God get me out of this, or the government get me out of this, somebody get me out of this. You can only do that for so long before that becomes kind of tedious. And you have to learn to say, okay, how do I be sustained in this? And your prayer changes. God, sustain me in this. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. So instead of focusing on our suffering, focus instead on our serving. Well, exactly. And, and, and focus on what God is doing in the midst of these things. You know, you go back and look at Solzhenitsyn after he got out of the Russian prison, and he said, you know, bless you prison for the change you've made in my life. I mean, something happened to him in that prison. Corey Tin Boone, you know, uh, I can just go down the list of, of people, Victor Frankl and all these other people who experienced life on a much greater level in the midst of some very, very harsh, harsh thing. Nelson Mandela, he went into prison almost as a terrorist and came out a statesman. And there's a point where we walk through this suffering, we walk through these bleak things, but if we are willing to, to go inward and to be changed in a healthy direction through this thing, we find that we, we can experience a, a quality of life that we thought was unattainable. There's beauty everywhere. There's excitement everywhere. There's joy everywhere. But it, sometimes we allow these things to obfuscate our view because this does affect us, like you said, our health, our emotions, our lifestyle, our profession, our money. Everything about this is affected. But is that necessarily a bad thing, and is it causing us to act like jerks? See, I, I'm from the mindset that that this does not cause character defects. It amplifies what's already there, and mm. it gives us an opportunity to deal with this in a healthy manner if we so choose. And the question then becomes, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, it's all about stewardship. How can I be the best steward for my wife? How can I be the best steward for me? What is the best choice for the unit? And as your godfather found out, that sometimes he had to get away. And he has to recognize that it's more important for him to have moments of respite and healthiness, and he's just going to have to not answer the phone so that he can be a healthy person. She needs him healthy, and people that are in pain or people that are diseased or whatever, impaired, they can't always see that. And so it's up to the caregiver 
to make those unilateral decisions without guilt, recognizing that they're, do it, they're loving them better when they're becoming healthier as an individual. And, of course, the irony is we, we also sometimes, I think, Peter, focus on our inconvenience, the difficulty, the trial that we are facing, and we perhaps, as close as we are to the situation, uh, cause our, our our perspective to become very distant. And by that I mean we forget about the fact that that individual who was in the bed doesn't want to be there, didn't ask for this, doesn't prefer this, doesn't see this as a better option, would much rather be up and about and living life as opposed to being bedridden or dependent upon another person to do everything from take them to the bathroom, to change their diapers, to shower them, feed them, shave them, all of that. Um, we sometimes forget that. And, and to remember that when they do, on occasions, lash out, when they do get upset, it's only at the closest person because they're really looking at their circumstance and their situation. And maybe because we're, we're so close, we lose eyesight of that. It's very easy to do. That's where the flashpoints come as a caregiver. And, you know, when I get in those points, I, I, it, it's hard to push a wheelchair with clenched fist. Mm-hmm. I've tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> you, can't be, you can't be that hacked off and try to push a wheelchair. And, and you know, I can't, if I'm going to change a dressing on my wife, I'd rather do it with, with tears on my cheek than with my teeth grinding, you know? And I think it helps for me to remember how much Christ condescends to me. And if I keep that in perspective, I usually can navigate through these these quagmires and these landmines a little bit easier. Um, but when I when I get so wrapped up in my own self, that's when it's hard. But but there there are tools and strategies that we as caregivers that's what we're all about at Caregivers with Hope is helping those caregivers learn to how to navigate these things so you don't set off those those emotional landmines that seem to go off in these in these high crisis moments. And I want to encourage listeners, by the way, Peter, on the heels of that exhortation, to take advantage of the website. There's a lot of great resources there. The big message, as you're hearing tonight, is you're not alone. Um, yes, it could be worse than this, so be grateful in what you have. It's a matter of your attitude, your perspective, and and as Peter, I think, very aptly mentioned, uh, people don't turn nasty and cruel because they're dealing with someone that is in the unfortunate circumstance of needing, requiring a caregiver. It it rather amplifies that pre-existing character flaw. And so to learn how to examine this through the magnifying glass of Scripture and then get the right attitude, the right perspective from a biblical viewpoint, from Christ's viewpoint, can be all the difference, can be very freeing for you. Information again on the web at caregiverswithhope.com. That's caregiverswithhope.com. And our thanks to Peter Rosenberger, founder of Caregivers with Hope, for being with us tonight on Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.